This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, 20 months into the pandemic, we'll sort out the conflicting signals on our recovery from COVID and the COVID economy. More and more Americans are heading back to in-office work, and the jobless rate is inching closer to pre-pandemic levels. But the broader economy is still struggling to shake off the impact of COVID-19. Prices are surging in sector after sector. Businesses are struggling to find workers, and supply chains are tied in knots. The pandemic has been calling the shots uh, for the economy and for inflation. So what can we do about it? We'll ask Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Then we'll ask the head of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank, Neil Kashkari, for his perspective. Plus, we're starting to see the seasonal impact on COVID cases, leading some states to encourage booster shots for all adults. We'll check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and we'll talk with Colorado Governor Jared Polis, whose state is wrestling with a new surge of infections. One in every 48 Coloradans are infected and contagious with COVID-19. Finally, we'll ask World Bank President David Malpass about the international commitment to fight climate change in the wake of the United Nations Glasgow Conference. Will wealthy countries fulfill their broken promise to help impoverished nations cope with the cost of a hotter planet? It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Progress in our slow march back to normal seems to be a continuing series of starts and stops, and there's a lot of confusion about where we are headed. Most Sundays, we start the broadcast with a look at what's going on that you need to know. And today's no exception. But one thing that's different is our Mark Strassman is actually here in person. Good morning to you. Good morning. Great to see you in person. So there were a lot of conflicting signals on the economy. What can you tell us? Uh, there's some fundamental disconnects going on with the economy, right? Between what it is we're all looking to buy versus what's available in store shelves. That's number one. Number two, if people have money in the bank, but they still feel financially vulnerable. And then there's this constant battle with sticker shock. Econ 101 in late 2021, when demand dwarfs supply and supply chains are bottlenecked, prices explode. Inflation's peak surge in three decades. There aren't enough truck drivers, there aren't enough trucks. All the way along, it's just kind of a hot mess this year. The Consumer Price Index, what we pay for goods and services year to year, jumped 6.2% in October. Broad-based and eye-popping. The biggest surge since 1991. New car prices up 9%. Used cars and trucks, astonishingly, up 26%. Gas, 50%. Heating oils climbed almost 60% with temperatures dropping. 
and food basics. Eggs up 12, bacon up 20%. You quickly see why inflation is now chewing into the president's popularity. Many people remain unsettled about the economy and we all know why. With pandemic restrictions loosened, consumer demand has roared back. Millions of families with stockpiled savings want to spend. Two pallets worth Arctic animals by Magnetiles. <laughs> Love it. And merchants want to sell. But supply chains from the ports to the highways remain knotted. Among the worried, U.S. turkey farmers. It's less than two weeks before their Super Bowl. Everything in the last couple of years has been a little more challenging, even down to boxes. Help wanted, another sign fueling inflation. We've become a nation of quitters. More than 4 million more workers resigned in September. The U.S. Labor Department reports 10.4 million job openings. Economists disagree whether this inflation will worsen and about the potential impact of trillions in government spending. The infrastructure bill, the social spending bill, on top of all that pandemic relief. Inflation pressures the Fed with rates now triple the average 2% gains it aims for annually. And with last month's Gallup poll, nearly 70% of Americans believe the economy is getting worse. There's also pressure on a president pushing for Washington to spend more. So again, the irony is with more money in the bank, millions of Americans are better off, but they don't feel it. And nor do they believe, Margaret, that anyone has a plan for getting inflation under control. And many, if not most people, believe the economy is going to get worse before it gets better. All important consumer psychology. Mark Strassman, thank you so much for being here. Bet. On Friday, we went to the Treasury Department here in Washington and sat down with Secretary Janet Yellen. She told us, unsurprisingly, that our economic stability depends on the pandemic. You have said that inflation is likely to be with us until the second half of next year. Are you confident that prices for the average American will be down by the time we head into next November and Election Day? The pandemic has been calling the shots uh, for the economy and for inflation. And if we want to get inflation down, I think continuing to make progress against the pandemic is the most important thing we can do. I think it's, it's, it's important to realize that the cause of this inflation is the pandemic. It led to uh, a dramatic um, increase in demand for, for products. Um, households were unable uh, to spend on services, going out to eat and traveling. They shifted as they um, stayed at home, worked more from home. They shifted their spending onto goods um, that led to a surge in the demand for products. And although the supply of products has increased in the United States and globally, not as much as demand. Americans feel confident about the job market. Um, quits have increased uh, to record numbers, which is a sign that people are getting um, outside offers. They're seeing wage increases. Um, that is something that didn't have to happen, and um, it really reflects mm -hmm. the support that we gave to Americans to keep up their spending and make it through. Uh, the pandemic, but um, with supply disruptions and this huge shift in um, 
in, de in demand toward products, we are seeing some broad-based price increases. We have shortages of semiconductors mm -hmm. that's really caused new and used car prices to rise car production. 26% year over year for used cars. Yes. Gasoline up 50%, eggs 12%, milk 6%, coffee 6%. So we are seeing some big increases in when prices. When does it get better? When do those spikes when the, abate? You know, when the economy recovers enough from COVID that demand patterns, people go back to eating out, traveling more, spending more on services, and the demand for products, for goods, um, begins to go back uh, to normal. And also, labor supply has been um, impacted by the pandemic. Uh, labor force participation is down. Mm -hmm. It hasn't recovered. And I would expect that if we're successful with the pandemic to be sometime in the second half of next year, I would expect prices to go back to normal. Because there could be a political cost to this. Yes. Well, I, there's an economic cost, and the Americans feel it. And when gas rises, um, average is now um, over $3 a gallon, and some places quite a bit higher. Americans notice it, and mm -hmm. it, it, makes, it makes a difference. But I just think it's important to put inflation in context of an economy that is improving a lot from um, what we had right after the pandemic and is making progress. China's leaders have repeatedly asked for the Trump era tariffs to be lifted. If the Biden administration did that, would it make things cheaper? Um, it would make some difference. Um, tariffs do tend to raise domestic prices. Um, we put those tariffs in place, President Trump and his administration did, as a, um, a retaliation for unfair trade practices. Should they stay and, in place? Um, you know, uh, we have said, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai has said that we're revisiting the uh, phase one trade deal and um, recognizing requests to um, reduce tariffs in some areas. So that's certainly something that's under consideration. When we talk about the supply part of the challenge you're dealing with here in the United States, is it the private sector's job to unclog the supply chain or is there more that you can be doing within the administration right now? The supply chains are by, are by and large private, but nevertheless, sometimes help in coordinating um, actions is useful and necessary to unclog supply chains. Um, we've been uh, talking with uh, the operators of ports in uh, Los Angeles, um, in Long Beach, in Savannah, um, trying to understand why there are such backlogs of ships waiting to, to um, offload their goods. Those ports have agreed to uh, stay open 24-7. And we've talked to the retailers about uh, trying to move their containers out to create more room. We're leaving no stone unturned, um, even though this is, this is mainly private. There are record level of job openings right now. That's right. And yet there's a worker shortage at the same time. What is going on with the supply and demand mismatch here? 
the programs that were put in place, the American Rescue Plan and the CARES um, Act and other programs, really were intended to support households and families to get through this so that they didn't take a huge hit to mm -hmm. their income. So financially, Americans say they feel good about their finances, and um, that's not an accident. Unemployment is low. Labor force participation is quite depressed relative to pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. I think part of it reflects concerns about COVID and exposure to COVID, especially in uh, jobs that involve um, public-facing um, activities. And I, partly, um, you know, the fact that childcare workers, mm -hmm. um, educators are in short supply creates childcare problems that also tends to suppress labor supply. So as I say, when we really get control of the pandemic, um, I think labor supply will go back to normal. Are we at a place we, where we need to increase immigration in order to meet this well, challenge? You know, there are a lot of issues involved in immigration, but that I believe that is one reason that we do face supply shortages, shortages of certain kinds of workers. What does the economic recovery look like without paid leave? I think we will still have an economic recovery that will be strong and um, you know, support ongoing growth. Um, but labor force participation, for, particularly for women, has been a problem in the United States now for some time. Once upon a time, female labor force participation in the United States was higher than almost any developed country. And now that is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. And when you compare the United States with other uh, developed countries, a big difference that stands out is a lack of support for, for people working, right. and particularly for women. Now, I'm very hopeful and fully expect the Build Back Better package um, to become law. Um, but it was taken out of the framework. Yes. Yeah, so paid, and it's unlikely to have paid, full support paid in the leave Senate. is important. It's an important support for um, people to be able to work. Um, but there's a great deal of support in that package for childcare. Mm -hmm. um, it does a lot to make childcare more affordable so that for most families, uh, childcare expense would be reduced from, I think, about 13% now down to no more than 7% of their income. But so there would I, be two additional years of um, early childhood education that would be universal mm -hmm. and a child tax credit that would um, help families um, be able to afford to take good care of their children and also participate in the workforce. So I think that package will help boost uh, labor force participation, particularly that of women. So you think what's in there is sufficient? Because back in February, you told me um, women's participation is down because they don't have access universally to paid family and medical leave and child care. Is it essential to full economic recovery? It's something that we will try to um, legislate in the future. 
um, it looks like it won't be a component of this package. The president's expected to make his selection for the Fed chair. Um, do you believe Jerome Powell should be renominated? How important is continuity? I'm going to leave it to the president to make a decision. I've said um, that I think Chair Powell has done a very good job of running the Fed, of addressing um, the issues, particularly that arose when the pandemic struck. Um, but what's important is that uh, President Biden choose someone who's experienced and credible, and there are a range of candidates. You can see our full interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on our website and our YouTube channel. We'll be back in one minute with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Joining us now is former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good morning to you. Good morning. You told us last Sunday that we are entering the final end of this pandemic phase, but we could see an uptick in cases as we transition to the next phase. 20 different states in this country are seeing an uptick. Should we prepare for a post-Thanksgiving spike? Well, look, we're going to see a post-holiday spike. There's no question about that. People are exhausted right now, but we need to remain vigilant just for a little bit longer. I think we can finally see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of declining prevalence on the back end of this Delta wave. And also with the deployment of new technology that we have, we now have orally available drugs that should be available in the first quarter. We have vaccines available to children. So we see a point in time when this is going to still be a pervasive risk, covid but it's not going to be the prevalent risk it is right now where it's per, where it dominates our lives. Now, when you look across the country, though, you really have to look at the country in terms of about 10 different regions and how this coronavirus has been experienced all through this pandemic. So if you're in parts of the south right now or the southeast, um, even if you're in the Pacific Northwest where cases are coming down quite dramatically or the plain states or certain mountain states, things are looking pretty good. And south, in the south, the prevalence is very low and unlikely to bump up substantially. But if you're in the southwest right now, you're in the Great Lakes region, Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, you're in parts of New England or western Pennsylvania or northern New York or certain mountain states like Colorado, things don't look good. You haven't experienced the Delta wave yet, and things are going to get worse before they get better. But you heard the Treasury Secretary say basically everything is determined by the path of this virus when it comes to the economic recovery. When do we say COVID's under control? 
I think COVID is going to be under control on the back end of this Delta wave through a combination of population-wide immunity. We're going to have a lot of people with immunity, either through vaccination or through infection. People who choose not to get vaccinated are probably going to get infected by this Delta variant, as well as the more rapid and widespread deployment of the tools that we're now getting available, um, the orally available antiviral drugs that people should have available in the first quarter if things go well, including one drug. Um, from the company. I'm on the board of Pfizer, as well as the widespread availability of vaccines, including for children. We now have the tools to really get this under control. Look, COVID's not going away. This is going to be an endemic virus. It stays with us a lot like the flu. We may have to get revaccinated for this on an annual basis. But this is not going to be sort of the pervasive risk that it is right now, where it dominates our lives and dominates the economy. But there are some parts of the country that still haven't had their, had their Delta wave that unfortunately are going to be hit pretty hard, especially the unvaccinated or undervaccinated parts of the country like the Southwest right now or certain states around the Great Lakes. There's a question what happens in the tri-state region or the mid-Atlantic. We have higher vaccination rates and higher rates of prior infections. So far, they're not seeing the big upticks. Mm -hmm. I think there's still some risk in those parts of the country as well. So preparing us for that, the NBA is telling its players to get a booster shot as soon as possible. Dr. Fauci is saying publicly, he's leaning in pretty hard to the idea that it is absolutely essential. Why isn't the CDC telling us to go get booster shots now? Well, look, I think the confusing message around the boosters may may end up being one of the biggest missed opportunities in this pandemic. We now see very clear evidence of declining vaccine effectiveness over time. There's different reasons why that may be the case. But the trend is unmistakable. And this has been apparent since the end of the summer. Now it's very clear. Anyone who's eligible for a booster, and most Americans probably are eligible for a booster at this point, should be going out and seeking it. Uh, this is the fastest way that we can increase the total immunity in the population because someone who has an old vaccine that may only have 50% of its effectiveness left, they go out and get a booster. They restore 95% effectiveness based on the data that we've seen within a matter of days. So the fastest way that we can get increased immunity in the population and increase the total immunity in the population may be through boosting people who've already been vaccinated with two doses. Plus, it's going to be easier to convert that person. It's going to be much easier to convince someone who's had two doses of vaccine to go out and get a third than to convince one of the 18 percent of Americans who's chosen to remain unvaccinated this long to get vaccinated for the first time. You just said that was one of the biggest missteps, missteps in this pandemic. This pandemic has been full of mistakes. Why is this the biggest one? Yeah, look, I I think when we look back, this may be a very big missed opportunity to try to get ahead of this Delta wave. Again, because this is going to be the fastest way that we can increase the total immunity in the population. We have to look at the immunity in terms of not just how many people have been vaccinated, but also the depth of immunity. How many people have a lot of residual immune protection against this virus and are going to be what we call a dead end host and not going to be someone who can catch and spread this virus. And the fastest way to turn someone into a dead end host is to get them fully vaccinated. There's a lot of people with declining vaccine effectiveness right now who can both catch and spread this virus. If we give them a booster, we restore the full effectiveness of that vaccine. The other way, unfortunately, is to to, to get to get immunity into the population quickly is to get people infected. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people are choosing to do this. If you go out and start vaccinating someone right now for the first time, it might take five or six weeks for them to get full immunity. In many parts of the country, this Delta wave mm -hmm. will be over in five or six weeks. So we need to do what we can right now. Understood. Uh, we're 10 months into the administration. The president has nominated someone now to run the FDA. What do you think of this candidate? 
Well, look, I think experience is important in these roles. That's why Janet, Dr. Janet Woodcock has been very exceptional in this role. She has a lot of experience in the agency. Rob Califf uh, also has a lot of experience running FDA. He's a previous FDA commissioner. I inherited his FDA, so I inherited his team. When I came in, he had left the end of the Obama administration in the beginning of the Trump administration. I took over at the beginning of the Trump administration. I inherited his team. It was an outstanding team. I worked to keep them in place. Most of them stayed. I also inherited his policies that he had set in motion, including around opioids, where he had set in motion an aggressive set of measures, uh, increasing regulation on immediate release formulation of opioids, education for providers. He also started the discussion around looking at the broader public health impact of the availability of opioids, which ultimately resulted in bipartisan legislation in the Support Act. So Rob mm -hmm. did a lot. I, I was the beneficiary of a lot of the things that he set in motion. Well, and, and opioids, of course, uh, something that may come up in any hearing, and he's already taken fire for. Thank you for your perspective. Right. The former FDA commissioner, <laughs> Dr. Scott Gottlieb, will be right back. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Colorado is one of several states dealing with a new spike in COVID cases. Their governor, Democrat Jared Polis, joins us this morning from Boulder. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning, Margaret. Your state's health agency says 72% of the eligible population has been fully vaccinated. So why is COVID still ravaging your state? You know, uh, right now what we're seeing across the Rocky Mountain West, the upper Midwest, sort of this swath of the country, we were largely spared uh, the Delta spike in summer and late summer, but we're getting it now. Now, uh, we're hopeful, and so far what we're seeing is it's not going to hit the same levels that it did in southeastern states that had 40, 50, 55 percent vaccination rates. But one thing we know about the Delta variant, Margaret, it is incredibly effective, like a heat-seeking missile, at seeking out the unvaccinated, infecting them, hospitalizing them in large numbers and, and killing them in certain, certain uh, all far too often. 95% of your ICU beds are occupied. I mean, people are getting very ill with this. You this week in, declared the entire state to be at high risk of exposure, and you told adults to go get a booster shot. Do you think other states should follow suit? And are you disappointed that the CDC has not been clear on this? Yeah, so we have about 1,500 people hospitalized. 81% of them, Margaret, are unvaccinated. Now, of the 19% that are vaccinated, we can reduce that, come close to eliminating it with the booster. And, and yes, I've been very frustrated with the convoluted messaging out of the CDC and the FDA. 
everybody should get the booster after six months. The data is incredibly clear that it increases your personal protection level. That's why my parents got it, I got it, my family members got it, but it also can help, uh, help improve the epidemiological state of, of, the, of a particular state or of the entire country because you have folks that are ready to roll up their sleeves and add that extra protection to go from 70 or 80% protection back to that 90, 95% level of protection, which can really have an impact in preventing the spread of the virus. Noted. Well, your state draws a lot of tourists, uh, particularly as we head into to ski season. I'm wondering why you aren't mandating more health restrictions. I know you're advising people to wear masks. Why not issue a mandate? Why not roll out more restrictions, distancing and things like that in, in places people gather? Well, there's many examples of folks that are doing what works in Colorado. In fact, I'm coming to you live from the University of Colorado at Boulder, where last year before the vaccine, they had a thousand cases in the course of a month. This year, just a handful. Why? Everybody's vaccinated. The students are wearing masks. Uh, likewise, with our outdoor recreation opportunities in winter, our world-class ski resorts, uh, many of them, of course, are anybody can ski, but to go to a lot of this indoor places uh, run by many of the ski resorts, they're also making sure the folks are vaccinated uh, to help make sure that we don't have additional unvaccinated tourists filling up Colorado hospitals. So uh, I think we have a good model to do it. We had a good season, good ski season last year. Uh, the thing that we need most right now is some more snow to make sure that we can give visitors from across the world that experience that they expect. But why not institute more capacity restrictions, do things uh, to try to help contain the spread? Well, these are happening in our state. There's areas of our state where people are, have to wear masks indoors. There's other areas of our state, uh, like the university, where have vaccination requirements. But you as a governor. Most of the ski resorts, which are the source of most, yeah. Well, as I said, they're, uh, I'm very proud of the steps that the ski industry has taken. I think they're doing very well. It's going to be a very safe experience, just like it was last year, uh, even during the national spikes. It's fundamentally an outdoor recreation activity. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing we've learned about the virus, including the Delta variant, uh, it's relatively safe to be outdoors. Nothing is zero risk in this day and age, but um, it's, it's relatively safe to be enjoying yourself outdoors. I hear you saying you prefer businesses to do it versus the government putting in some of those restrictions. Is that right? Well, right now, if you're vaccinated, your risk is one-tenth or one-twelfth what it was during the highest peak before. And for folks who are vaccinated, you know, this is still a higher risk than usual in the background, but this is like the endemic state of what this virus will always be. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a pandemic for you. If you're unvaccinated, this is the most dangerous time for you, no matter where you live in the country or in the world because of the highly contagious nature of the Delta variant. The most important thing you can do is get vaccinated. But um, if you continue to be unvaccinated, please be careful, wear a mask, and don't gather in large indoor areas around others. You're coming to the White House tomorrow for the signing of the infrastructure bill, I understand. Um, will you have shovel-ready projects by the spring? Because large parts of this bill don't actually take effect till 2023, 2024. How many jobs do you actually benefit from? Yeah, we're, we're ready to go. Uh, we were ready to go several months ago. We're ready to go now. I'll be excited to join President Biden and uh, bipartisan members of Congress uh, to sign the bill. We in Colorado passed a bipartisan infrastructure package through our own legislature to complement what we were expecting out of the federal government, but also to get moving. So we have projects underway, including expansions of Highway 70, an additional lane each way around Floyd Hill to better access our uh, high country and ski resorts uh, throughout the year. Do you have an estimate on job creation from the federal bill and when those jobs will result? 
Well, it'll be, as you know, it's a 10-year investment package, um, so there'll be jobs on the, you know, the fundamental is a benefit to people, right? So there, are there jobs adding broadband to more families and houses? Yes, there are, but the real benefit is this connects our rural communities and helps empower and grow our local economies. Of course, we, we support the jobs in road expansion and electric vehicle infrastructure, but again, fundamentally, this will fund the transition to electric vehicles, cleaner air, taking action on okay. climate, and less traffic. All right, Governor Polis, good luck to you. Thank you for your time today. We turn now to Neil Kashkari. He's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis and joins us from that city this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, Neil, core inflation's at a 30-year high. Do you think we are at the peak or is it going to get worse? The math suggests we're probably going to see somewhat higher readings over the next few months before they likely start to taper off. We're seeing both a surge of demand because Congress has given a lot of money to families and the businesses to get through the pandemic. But we're also seeing supply disruptions at the same time because of the COVID virus. The good news is both of those should be temporary. The challenge is these high prices that families are paying, those are real and people are experiencing that pain right now. And so we take that very seriously, but I'm optimistic that it should be temporary, even though it is causing pain right now. It is causing pain, but many Americans feel like they're being told what they're experiencing isn't real when they're told it's transitory, that word the White House keeps using and the Fed keeps using. You said uh, we won't get back to 2% inflation until 2024. Why do you think it's going to take us that long? Well, I think both of these things, the demand side and the supply side, are going to take some time to work out. But it's important from the Fed's perspective that we don't set long-term monetary policy uh, and adjust too much based on temporary factors, even if those temporary factors take a little bit longer than we expect. You know, if you look at the supply chains, some supply chains have already sorted themselves out. Some are taking longer. We know the auto sectors and semiconductors takes a long time to put more capacity online. So there are going to be sectors that are going to be struggling for a while, while other sectors uh, right the ship, so to speak, more quickly. And so we need to pay very close attention to this. We need to take it very seriously. But my view is we also need to not overreact to some of these temporary factors, even though the pain is real. You know, the Federal Reserve, when we adjust monetary policy, it acts with a lag. And so if we overreact to a short-term price increase, that can set the economy back over the long term. So you don't think the Fed should be taking steps faster than they currently are? Right. I think we've taken the appropriate steps. We've, as you know, we've begun normalizing our balance sheet, quantitative easing. We've now begun the taper process, which, which will probably take six months. That's the first step in reducing monetary policy boost that we're providing the economy. And over the next three, six, nine months, I think we're yeah. going to get a lot more data on both the demand side and the supply side to get a better reading of where the economy is headed. You're talking about the emergency bond purchases that, that had been done throughout the course of the pandemic there um, and some of the emergency measures. I, I want to ask you about what the administration is saying it's doing, um, and that is pumping in trillions of dollars in these rescue packages. Is the risk worth it? Because most economists do expect some inflation from it. Well, I think Congress and the executive branch, uh, both President Trump and under President Biden, were very aggressive in supporting families and businesses 
through the pandemic, and that was the right thing to do. You know, the recovery is much stronger than it was, say, after the 2008 financial crisis. That's in part because the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities were so aggressive. I think the question is, what does Congress and the executive branch do going forward? Mm -hmm. What they've done so far is temporary in nature. The question is, are there long-term new spending programs, and are they paid for or not? Right. Whether or not they are paid for is going to have an impact on inflation. Right. So it's actually too soon to say it won't add or, or, or have an impact. Um, COVID. We heard your state and your region highlighted by Dr. Gottlieb as an area where infections are climbing right now. Um, does this latest wave have a big impact in the recovery that you see right now underway? It absolutely will. Right, right now, we are about four or five million jobs and workers short of where we should be had there been no pandemic. You know, six months ago when I was on your show with you, I focused on schools that were shut, enhanced unemployment benefits and fear of the virus. Well, schools are largely reopened. The unemployment benefits have expired. So what we're left with, what's keeping people on the sidelines, we think it's fear of the virus, the Delta wave, and the continued spread. So the sooner we can get this pandemic really under control, the more quickly people will have confidence to go back to work. That will help the economic recovery, and that will certainly help bring down inflation. And what about the child care and other packages that are built into what the president is trying to push through? I know you've been looking at the impact on women dropping out of the workforce. Well, this is a long-term issue facing our country. You know, we have been a laggard relative to other advanced economies in providing child care for families. You and I both have young children. We know the huge challenges associated with child care, yet we're both very privileged to be able to afford it. Many families are not as lucky, and so it does have a factor. It does have an effect on women's participation in the labor force and how high our labor force participation is as a whole. These challenges have been exacerbated in the pandemic, and so I think long-term, this is an important economic growth issue and competitiveness issue for the country. I, I wanna ask you, I guess it's kind of an awkward question, but you heard the Treasury Secretary seem to indicate that uh, Jerome Powell, the current chair of the Federal Reserve, might not have a lock on the job. Um, would nominating another top contender like Lael Brainerd actually affect policy much? Well, I think both uh, Chair Powell and Governor Brainerd are outstanding, very seasoned, experienced monetary policymakers. And I think uh, if either of them got the nod from President Biden, I think we would be in very good, capable hands. I've worked with both of them. I think they're both outstanding. And so I think uh, the president has very good choices ahead of him. So not much of an impact on policy. I think both of them have been instrumental in the new framework that we've adopted in terms of not shortcutting the recovery. And I'm confident that either of them as chair would continue to see that through. And that's very important in my view. Understood. Neil Kashkari, thank you for your insight. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash We turn now to COVID and the COVID economy around the world. The head of the World Health Organization said last week the world is at another critical point of pandemic resurgence. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports from London. Good morning. 20 months in, this pandemic, which has now killed more than 5 million people worldwide, is once again surging in Europe. Winter arrived in central Siberia along with a deadly wave of coronavirus infection, one that swept clear across Russia. The vast majority of its victims were unvaccinated. Most Russians don't trust the state or the locally developed Sputnik V vaccine. So even after a month of record deaths, only roughly 35% of Russians have been immunized. Western Europe, especially Germany, is also seeing a huge spike in COVID cases. Hospitals are filling up, and once again, most of those seriously ill haven't had a shot. The Austrian government has said enough is enough. In hard-hit areas, people who get themselves fully vaccinated, it's said, can live normal lives. And those who refuse will go back into lockdown. In the Netherlands, public patience with restrictions is wearing thin. Police brought out water cannons in The Hague as they faced off with protesters furious about new rules to tackle a COVID surge, including early closing times for cafes and restaurants. And increasingly across the continent, anyone looking to enter an indoor public space has to show a vaccine pass. The exception is Britain where Remembrance Day ceremonies went ahead pretty much as normal today. Everyone is breathing a little easier. After a big spike in October, UK COVID infections are finally on the way down. But even with high vaccination rates here and a smooth rollout of the booster program, the experts are saying that with winter looming, the UK is not out of the woods yet. Margaret? Liz Palmer, thank you. Poor countries continue to wait on COVID shots. The head of the WHO said it is a scandal in his view that six times more booster shots are administered globally than first doses are in low-income countries. An organization heavily involved in financing global vaccines and climate change commitments for developing countries is the World Bank, and its president, David Malpass, is with us this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Well, you have no shortage of issues. Um, Vaccine crisis. Uh, You have right now inflation at 30 year high in the United States, debt crisis potentially in China, potential energy issues in Europe. Um, How shaky is this global recovery? You know, it's very difficult. And for people at the bottom, for the poor, uh, it's really an unequal situation. They're not getting vaccines. The debt burden is is super high. Uh, and so this is a challenge for everybody. Uh, their growth rates are well under the growth rates in the advanced economies. And that's the opposite of what we really want to get development. We need them to be growing faster, creating even more jobs. But the unemployment rates there are very high. So what is the first step in solving that? 
The first step is vaccine, so we can talk about that. Uh, but then I think there has to be really a range of policies for the countries themselves. They can do more to help. And then in the advanced economies, there's just not a, uh, a there's not resources that are going worldwide. They're mostly staying in uh, in unequal situations in the advanced economies themselves. The people doing the best right now are the people at the top. Well, the top two biggest economies, the United States and China, also have their issues. Um, uh, China has this debt crisis, potentially, that you heard the Treasury Secretary say they're monitoring very closely. How concerned are you? We work closely with with China. You know, its system is different uh, from the market-based system of the world. It's a Communist Party system, and so there are frictions, there are there are challenges. But from the standpoint of the World Bank, we're working well with them on marine plastics, reducing that uh, from the from the river systems. Also, the also from a greenhouse gas emissions standpoint, we're working with them. So you know, China's engaged in the world. It's making vaccines for its its own population. Uh, and so uh, we can look at that uh, as well. I think we have to recognize there are these frictions on uh, debt transparency, for example. As they, as they enter into contracts in the developing world, there's often a non-disclosure clause, which makes it very hard for people to know whether they're getting a fair deal. China's being a predatory lender to poor people. Uh, is what you're saying. You, you said that. Uh, and so we're working with them hard to try to get more transparency in the contracts. And that actually helps them and the developing countries. It, the World Bank has warned that because of COVID, low-income countries have an enormous debt level. Are you saying that we are at the point where we could see what we went through a few years ago with the Greek debt crisis, where a country's, you know, basically needing to be bailed out? Yes. And so the, we did a report a year and a half ago before pan, the pandemic that was called Four Waves of Debt. So there was the Latin debt crisis. There was the Greek debt crisis. And we're at risk of another one now. Uh, it would be based on the uh, poorest, low-income countries. Uh, debt went up by 12 percent in 2020. Even in the pandemic, when most of the economic activity was going down, their debts were going up. We've done two big reports just in the last two months on this, uh, this big challenge. I've been pushing for debt relief for the poorest countries. Uh, that's been hard to achieve. The world just is not set up to think about it this way of uh, you're in the middle of a pandemic, you ought to have a moratorium on the payments from those countries, but there's no mechanism to do that. I want to ask you about climate. Um, we just saw this weekend the big conference, the UN conference wrap up. Rich countries have been pledging for a while that they're going to pitch in $100 billion a year to help low-income countries um, basically adapt here to extreme weather. Five to ten times that might be needed. So how much did this climate change conference fall short? These are huge challenges. I was glad to see them talking about specifics like coal and methane. You know, methane is one of the most powerful greenhouse gas uh, gases, uh, and they are looking for ways to reduce that, the leaking that's coming from, from uh, wells and from pipelines. That's practical. The World Bank is very much on that side. We need to find projects that are impactful, and then how do you fund them? And you're exactly right. The amounts of funding need 
to be many times what's been what's been talked about or provided so far. World Bank can't do it alone, uh, but it, it, I, th I think it's going to take the whole world effort. We don't want to punish the poor, uh, and the poor are already getting punished by inflation, as you m mentioned. Uh, and you know, China and Russia are benefiting in some ways from these conditions. China, because it's the core of the supply chain, and Russia because it has so many energy resources. Mm -hmm. And so we have this big challenge in finding a balance in the world to pay for the climate changes uh, that, uh, that would actually reduce greenhouse gas. That can be practical. Coal, coal is a practical one. How do you decommission an old coal-fired power plant? Right. Some operating in South Africa are 55 years old. So we're working. The World Bank is engaged in all these issues, trying to have practical projects that are funded. I want to ask you about something you wrote last year. Um, you had an op-ed with Melinda Gates uh, talking about the recovery requiring an investment in women in particular. Um, and you said all countries would benefit from appropriate family leave policies and quality child care. So as an economist, are you saying paid leave is essential to a recovery? Well, all, all countries need family uh, leave policies. So I don't know about paid. That's a, you know, I don't want to comment on a U.S. Uh, political issue. But for, for the world, the women in the labor force, and I, I heard Secretary Yellen talking about that, this is vital uh, because they're a key part of how countries can grow. And it's not just in the labor force. Women need to be included in inheritance rights, for example. In some countries, they can't do that. And especially girls in education is a vital need for the world. If you're going to develop, that has to be a starting point for it. And some of the world is not at that point. So we work hard on those issues, gender equality issues and inclusion in the, in the financial system, the labor force, and so on. Understood. Making the economic argument, not the political one. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Colorado Democratic Governor Jared Polis, Minneapolis Federal Reserve President Neil Kashkari, and World Bank Group President David Malpass. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary Hager. Broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. 
But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.